Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, and I'd like to welcome you to episode 276 of the FCPA Compliance and Ethics Report. The FCPA Compliance and Ethics Report is sponsored by the Red Flag Group. The Red Flag Group is a business advisory, information services, and technology firm that helps clients manage risk across four key risk areas. The risk areas include sales and sales channels, including distributors, resellers, and partners, suppliers, customers, human capital consisting of employees and contractors. You can find out more information on the Red Flag Group by checking out their website, www.redflaggroup.com. Also, the Red Flag Group will be hosting another series of webinars on risk management and supply chain. This webinar will be Thursday, September 15th, 11 a.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Central, and 8 a.m. Pacific Time. Webinars entitled Gathering Materials from Your Suppliers to Better Understand Their Business Practices. There is no charge to attend this webinar. And you can find out more about it at the Red Flag Group website, www.redflaggroup.com, and click on the tab, Upcoming Webinar. Today I have back with me Scott Lane. Scott is the CEO of the Red Flag Group. And Scott and I talk about the evolution of regulators in their views of best practices We've had uh, several iterations of uh, changes in the way the regulars look at best practices compliance programs. Scott and I review those and portend where regulator oversight may be going. We also touch upon training. The episode comes in at uh, just around 17 minutes. I hope you enjoy it. This is Tom Fox. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of the FCPA Compliance Network. I wanted to visit with you today about what we both see in terms of uh, regulator evolution, or to put another way, the Department of Justice has, I think, clearly evolved in its thinking of what is a best practices compliance program for almost for 18 years, almost 20 years now. And you have seen companies respond to this and some of this, and I wanted to maybe explore that with you. And if I could start off by giving what I think are the four major statements by the U.S. Department of Justice about what constitutes a best practices compliance program. It uh, started in 1998 with an enforcement action called Metcalf and Eddy, where they listed the uh, best practices compliance program. In 2004, in something called Opinion Release 0402, they laid out another set of guidelines in 2012, we had the FCPA guidance, which is a joint uh, uh, release by the Department of Justice and Securities and Exchange Commission about all things FCPA, including the 10 hallmarks of an effective compliance program. And then in late 2015, leading up to April of 2016, we had a series of announcements and pronouncements by the Department of Justice culminating in something called the new pilot program, where as part of that pilot program, they um, indicated uh, some of the uh, components of what they believe would be indicia of an effective compliance program. I gave that somewhat long-winded explanation to, sh- to try to demonstrate that the regulators, at least in the FCPA world, that their thinking has evolved and their understanding of what is an effective compliance program has evolved. And what I wanted to maybe visit with you about is how should a company think through this? How should a company think through the regulator's pronouncements, and is simply responding to a regulatory pronouncement really a best business practice? Well, Tom, it's a, it's a good question, and it's something that I experience quite a lot because when, when asked to come and look at compliance programs for companies, they often 
use the benchmark as being those four uh, examples you quoted. And they're trying to determine whether or not the compliance program they have meets essentially the, the guidelines and, and the hallmarks, etc. And I, my, my advice to them always is that, that I think it's a good place to start, but it's by no means a place to finish. Meaning I think that the regulators have done a certainly a reasonable job at trying to document some of their thoughts and views on what's expected. But actually, I think it's far more complicated than, than what they're, uh, what they're sitting out, setting out on those documents. And, and, and I say that because I think that when you look at those things and you take them internationally and you take them into the 100 or 200 countries that companies are operating within, and you look at the different cultures and the different mindsets and the different approaches to business in all those countries and languages and the complexities with, with the business operations in those countries, I, I think that you need to be far more flexible. And, and, and to give you an example, uh, when we look at training, uh, and there's been a number of pronouncements over the years about how regulators expect people to, example, doing uh, anti-corruption training. And, uh, and more recently, the regulators have started to recognise that it's got to be the quality of that training, not so much the quantity of it, which is a great step. Um, but I, you know, I often challenge people to even look at it even further and, and to think about, think about what's most important to get your message across in a market. And that might be training. It might be an awareness. It might be a communication. It might be that your focus on compliance in a particular country won't, for example, be on training. Uh, because, frankly, the country is rarely going to listen to you. The people in that country will, will rarely listen to you about training. And the training is not the best method. It's something else. It might be a control, a physical control that stops someone from doing something as opposed to telling them or teaching them what the result is. So, so to answer your question, I think the regulators have done a, a, a reasonable job. However, I think companies need to look much more broadly and they need to take that as one factor of many into account when they're trying to decide the direction of their compliance programs. Well, Scott, that... Uh, uh I guess when a company looks at regulatory pronouncements and they understand this is the bar I have to meet, the, the things you've suggested seem to me to be a level beyond that and a level of having compliance be a part of the overall business process that, frankly, many companies may not be at yet. So when a company says we have trained every employee and they've certified on that, how do they begin to think through, hold on a minute, are we training the right people? Are we training in the right way? And how do we even know the training we're doing is effective? How can a company make that shift internally? Well, you're right, and that's a good example where people do rate the training as uh, a one or a zero, whether it's been completed or not completed. And to me, that metric is, frankly, pretty relevant. I mean, whether or not... 100% or 90% or 2% have done the training is irrelevant. The objective is, have we reduced the risk of a company from engaging in, for example, corrupt activity? And if we have reduced that risk, then whether we've achieved 98% or 92% of training across the globe is, is frankly an irrelevant question. And so the objective is, have we reduced the risk and has that been shown to have reduced uh, the risk because we've had no violations or we've had no investigations or we've had no... Uh, conduct which has given rise to a claim, I think those metrics are far more example, far more important than the metric of how many people have completed training. So, so I guess my message is, 
you've got to look at the big picture, which is what are we trying to achieve out of the compliance program? And the answer is we're trying to comply with a set of standards, a set of policies, a set of rules, a set of laws, and we're trying to make sure that, that we do so in a way that, that continues to comply and grows a business and, and also keeps a standard of ethics and integrity across the organisation that we expect and that we, that we hold dear to our hearts. That's the test. Whether people have done 100% of training or whether we've done due diligence on 100% or whether we've audited uh, 100% of third parties or whatever is a little bit arbitrary, I think, when it comes to the overall message. Well, if it's a little bit arbitrary to set and hit those metrics, how does a company begin to think through what are our true risks or who are the people that are at risk or who are we doing business with that could put us at risk? Good question. I often I often get involved in what you know what is generally called the risk assessment process, and so companies sit down and they they often go through a very large and far too complicated risk assessment procedure where they send questionnaires out to every part of the business and they collect all this massive amounts of information and they they dial through it on spreadsheets or systems and they come back with a a very large and significant set of risks. Um, I, I think that's one way of doing it. Um, another way. Uh, which I've experienced uh, works effectively, very effectively, is to sit down with people in a room and say, right, tell me the five places where this company is likely to pay a bribe. Just five. And show me when, when would we most likely see it? How would we detect it? Who would be involved? And what systems would, be, would touch that potential bribe? And if we, in most companies, you can, you, we know where those five things are. And we know, frankly, which of the five countries we're likely to see it in. And frankly, we know the circumstances in which it's going to occur. And it, rarely do I find that that dialogue goes any more than about 15 minutes to half an hour. Everyone knows the five places where this company is most likely going to pay a bribe. And then my answer to people is, right, let's focus on those. Let's get those right. And let's nail those. And then, then let's go to the next layer and say, right, where are the next five places where we're likely to pay a bribe? And so to me, there's a risk assessment process, which I described first, which is generally very long and complicated and is an annual risk assessment that, that on day 360 uh, gets finished and we start thinking about next year's. Or we get to the, the harsh reality of uh, you know, realism within companies that we pretty much know where the five places are. And if you don't know where those five places are, then, then frankly, I think the compliance office, or the compliance officer needs to, uh, needs to take a good hard look at what they've been doing uh, because any good compliance officer should be able to know within five seconds where those five places are. Let me go back to training a minute because I know that's something that uh, you've thought about a lot and worked on quite a bit. And one of the things you advocate is giving the right training to the right person at the right time. And that training may be before I go overseas. That training may be uh, when I begin to engage a potential customer that would have FCPA implications. That training might be I'm a new business relationship manager and I have to go outside the United States to visit with our key business partners. Um, but the way you've described it, it is who are the people that need the focus training now not the once a year, we don't bribe because we're an ethical company. How do you, how do you make that determination? Well, firstly, I think it's, it's common sense. It's actually all the things that you mentioned, to be honest. I mean, it's saying to a person, I need you to do a job, and I need you to do it according to our standards. 
And those standards may be from a quality standard, a time standard, or maybe a legal standard. And the answer is, well, I need to help that employee be successful. And that's my job as a compliance officer, is to help them be successful. And I need to help them, coach them, inform them, train them on the things they need to know when they are doing certain best business activities. So if they are traveling overseas, they are meeting with a customer, they are engaging in, in, in a sort of transaction, uh, then they need to know certain things. And, and I think that training is in the moment. I think that training is on the job. I think that training is uh, immediate, uh, avail immediately available training. And I think that training uh, is, is not going to be the once a year compliance training that says, don't do this, don't do that. I think that is just a flawed model. Uh, I just don't think that people learn. I don't think they take it in. I don't think they absorb it. I don't think they remember it. And I don't think that people are smart enough to be able to attach that training that they did a year ago or two years ago to the very fact situation they find themselves in when they're standing in an airport and they're trying to get through customs and they get held up uh, by a particular country's enforcement agency uh, looking for some sort of payment. I don't think people can join the dots. I think it's unrealistic for them in the field, in the moment, to join all those dots together. And I think it's unfair... Uh, on, on the employee, frankly, to, for us to, to, as a compliance team, to point back and say, well, you did the training, you should know. I think that's unrealistic. And so I don't think the objective of compliance training necessarily comes back to the compliance officer. I think it should be to the manager. I think the manager of that employee who is traveling overseas, who is engaging with government, who is doing that sort of transaction, the manager should be responsible for helping that employee see what they need to know to be successful to do their job. And so that manager uh, needs to be equipped with the, the general knowledge that is acceptable from the compliance officer's perspective so that they can pass it down. But what I know is it is definitely not the once a year e-learning that everyone clicks through. That is not the answer. It's interesting that uh, it almost sounds like you're talking about training the trainer. Oh, I think it is. I think it is training. I don't see any other way of doing it. I, I think that training needs to come from the top down and, you know, we always hear in compliance, it's about tone at the top. You know, a few years ago, we heard the phrase tone at the middle. Um, I think all of those things are correct. But, but I think it's more than just tone. I don't, I don't think tone is acceptable. I think anyone can set a tone, whether they believe it or not. It's about the value. It's about the, their, their knowledge, their experience. That's what you need. You need that being able to be at the top and at the middle. Tone is, you know, frankly, tone is... Uh, you know, there's a reason why we use the phrase tone deaf for a reason. Uh, it needs to be more than that. It, it's about knowledge and experience, and that gets passed down from managers. That's what managers are for. That's the purpose of a manager. It's to, there to equip their staff to be successful, to do the right thing, to see the values and the integrity of the organization, and to be successful in their job. That is the job of a manager. And so I think training managers is the most important thing that a compliance officer should be doing. In the management of third parties, it is often suggested that a company have a business relationship manager or a business sponsor or someone from the business unit who has ownership of that third party, that relationship, and the compliance portion of that relationship. I almost hear you saying that that model should be moved over to the internal side as well so that you have a manager who has accountability and ownership for the compliance relationships of those in his or her charge. I think that's absolutely correct. I mean, look, I think about it in my own situation. And so as a firm, 
we do work all around the world, and we often have to send people across the globe, and we send people to Iraq to do projects and, and parts of the world which are pretty tough. And obviously, I wouldn't let one of my team go off and do one of those projects unless we all sat down and, and talked about it, and we talked about the experiences they're going to need, the challenges they're going to incur, the problems that they might find, and how to manage through it. And so that's the job of me as the instructing uh, principal, to help them be successful and to predict some of the issues from my own experience and to give them the solutions they need to be successful. And I think that's exactly the same in every company. But, but for some reason, when it comes to ethics and integrity, we, we can't take the view, I think, that, that only the compliance officer or only the compliance team have got that knowledge and, and that we are the ones that need to espouse that and push it through training to the organisation. And I, I actually, I don't think that's realistic. I, I think... I think our companies are too big and they're too complex and one size doesn't fit all. And as we've seen, it's more complicated than that. I, I just think that the, that the managers have to step up and take on responsibility and that's part of their job and, and they, they need to be equipped with that. And so I'd much rather have that one-on-one -on -one dialogue between a manager and his or her you know, maximum 10 direct reports uh, that they can manage that. It's not very... I mean, they're... Presumably, they're coaching them on all sorts of things across the business. Uh, adding integrity coaching is, uh, is just another thing that they need to focus on. Scott, this has been a great recording, and I look forward to continuing the conversation. Thanks, Tom. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.